Anyway, since we seem to be out of witnesses, I thought I'd drink a little. Yeah, we're on. We're on. This is it. This is the real deal. This is Both the first times. inaugural uh, episode of uh, Straight Law Cocktail, brought to you by uh, Tyler Pollock and Rob Harvey. Hello. Cheers. Um, maybe to begin with, the name. There actually is a cocktail called a straight law cocktail. And uh, that is a mixture of three quarter ounces of gin and uh, one and a half ounces of uh, sherry. And so I just happened today to have a little Bombay Sapphire. A bottle of Tio Pepe that I pre-measured into a shaker with ice. Or into a glass, strain. And I've uh, added a maraschino cherry and a leaf of basil to give it a little, uh, you know, je ne sais quoi, as it were. So there it is, the inaugural uh, straight law cocktail. There you go. And I'll try it. I, I've not tried one of these yet. I'm sorry we're not together that I can try it. Uh, not bad. I mean, it's a little martini-ish. You know, kind of a little straight liquor, but um, good by the end of the podcast, I might be <laughs> saying all sorts of gibberish. So, um, so I'm Rob Harvey. I'm a lawyer, about 35 years now with uh, the firm of uh, Harvey Denbuck Pollock, I'm my partner on the uh, podcast, I guess, YouTube I'm, channel, as it is. I'm Tyler. Tyler Pollock, I, uh, I'm a lawyer of about five years and uh, do just family law basically. Yeah. And uh, I'm kind of being mentored by Rob. So here we are. Yeah, so there we are. And so the idea of the straight law cocktail is um, trying to talk to people about uh, legal issues, particularly in their family law divorce in a way that uh, is kind of direct and straight having nothing to do with, uh, you know, um, sexuality of anybody watching. Uh, That's I think not the nature want of the name. Their, of... No, they want their legal advice to be honest. Yeah. And that's what we're going to try and do here. So that's the point of things. And uh, so there we go. So what do we want to talk about today, Tyler? You know what? I think uh, an important issue that we need to talk about is... I guess our perception of what we think clients' biggest issues are. What what are, what are the clients' biggest issues with that they face? And uh, I think that's a great way to start off our podcast. Figure out well, what's the basic. What is what is the thing they need to deal with? So where are we at? What do you think about that? What do we think about that? Well, I've had this conversation with clients. Um, I've been divorced, so I'm not judgmental. In fact. Uh, I recall back when I got divorced being somewhat irrational and uncertain as to what I should be doing. Um, so I think the biggest concern for clients to begin with is um, trying to get their feet on the ground again, trying to make their best decisions, trying to be their 
their best selves in a very difficult situation. Um, and so I think that's the principal challenge, you know, um, I've lectured lawyers on this before, but one of the issues that occurs when you go through a breakdown is you have a highly uh, agitated emotional state. I think that's fair to say. And um, I was going to show something. Um, let's see how this works, but there's a thing called the Holmes Ra life stress inventory. And uh, it talks about how certain levels, stress levels occur based on life events. And uh, you can maybe see that now. Uh, and if you look at the top three most stressful life events, death of a spouse, divorce, and marital separation from a mate. These are the things that are hardest for people to adapt to when they occur. And, uh, and so I think when people come to us, they have a legal problem without a question, but they have an emotional problem and sometimes they don't even realize it. And so they're trying to make really important decisions with um, somewhat fractured sort of capacity. So I think that's the biggest issue. I, most of my clients now, even when they seem to be well adjusted, I say, you need to get some counseling. You need to get your head on straight. Otherwise you're gonna tell me to do certain things that may not be in your best interest. That's interesting that you say that that's what it is. So I put a little thought into this leading up to today and I came up with three things. And to me, they're sort of similar. My thoughts were, you know, clients being irrational when they're trying to make decisions and when they're trying to deal with this conflict was their number one issue that they just can't seem to deal with. Um, my next one was clients having a false perception of what justice is or what is just. And my third one was clients having unreasonable expectations of their lawyer trying to control the behavior of the other party or the other lawyer. And so it's funny, you know, I kind of come at it from a point where, yeah, I guess I've been doing this for about five years and maybe I'm a little frustrated when day after day after day, this is what I see. And you're kind of calm sitting over there saying, Hey, look at this. There's a reason why clients are having this struggle. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I, I, I work with a group called the national self-represented litigants project. And, uh, uh, Julie McFarlane is, is basically the, the director and, and she's a remarkable, incredible person, but she struggles with, the. Uh, stereotype of self-represented litigants as crazy people. It really irritates her when she hears that. And my perception, and, and I know she'll bristle if she ever watches this, <laughs> is that self-represented litigants are kind of crazy. But then but so, so are represented litigants. But the problem is twofold. Uh, if you're a represented litigant, you hopefully have a lawyer that can bring some objectivity to it and help you get your feet on the ground. Um, but the other thing is when you don't have a lawyer, not only do you not have that filter, but you're trying to navigate in a world that was never designed for people that aren't lawyers. And so if you weren't kind of crazy going in, by the time you start working with the legal system, you're going to become very crazy. And, and when I say crazy, um, what I'm kind of talking about is this fight or flight reflex when we're, when we're placed in a situation of risk. And I think divorce is like that, whether you're the husband or the wife, or if you're a same-sex couple, um, either partner, they don't know what their future is going to look like. They've, they've lost the trust of somebody who's incredibly important to them. And so that's emotionally devastating. But now they're looking at what their future is going to look like. Are they going to be able to get their reasonable uh, share of assets? What is, 
what are their bills going to be like compared to their ability to pay? So what is support going to look like if they have children? How are we going to parent together now that we don't like each other anymore? So I think that fear, you know, it, it stereotypically puts people in a position, you know, like a cat in a corner. Yeah, and yeah. so if you have a lawyer, that can mitigate a little bit because your lawyer can help calm you down and make you feel like it's going to be okay. When you don't have a lawyer, holy shit. I mean, yeah, th that fear is accentuated. And then you show up in a courtroom where everybody knows what's going on except you. And they make you feel like you're stupid or that you're crazy. And it accentuates that fear and that anxiety. So I think everyone struggles. Yeah, and the yeah. thing that frustrates me the most, and I've lectured lawyers on this, is when lawyers buy into it, right? Because we've been talking about clients struggling. Well, lawyers struggle way yeah. too often. And I've said to lawyers, if you adopt your client's anxiety, fear, and anger, now you got two crazy people tr trying to steer the boat. And yeah. I think, unfortunately, and I know what your experience is, there's a lot of lawyers that aren't far off the anxiety and fear of their client. And they're not making good decisions either. And I think that's the struggle is the client doesn't know how to make a good decision because they're highly agitated under stress. And right. sometimes their lawyer adopts that anger and fear. Yeah. And now they're both not necessarily making uh, rational decisions. So I think that contributes <clears throat> significantly to, to the high conflict we often see in divorce and litigation where it's not needed and inability to find resolution. I mean, I don't know what your experience is the last five years, but 35 years, it's stunning. How many files, two years and $50,000 down the road are within five or 10% of where you recommended they probably should end up? Oh, consistently. And why can just... clients get to that place? Well, because they started out thinking that justice was gonna deliver to them what they wanted. Um, and because they were, not completely rational. So yeah. I think that's the struggle. And I think that's, you know, we're lawyers, we're not psychologists, but trying to help our clients make their best decisions in a difficult situation is, it's hard. Yeah, definitely. I think that some of the reason that things settle two, three, four, five years down the road for basically what it, both lawyers would have agreed on is reasonable at the beginning is because, um, you know, clients buy into this kind of positional bargaining, right? Which mm -hmm. is kind of like a traditional way that people buy a house, where yeah. you have a list price on one side, and then you've got uh, an offer on the other side, and then you try and meet somewhere in the middle, and both hopes you're going to be closer to one end or the other. This goes on and on and on, and you pay your lawyers all this money to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Instead of being able to sit down and say, look how close we are. Let's capitalize on the fact that we can agree on what we can agree on forward. Uh, and there's other dispute resolution models, right? Other than going to court and other than even negotiating, especially other than yeah. uh, positional kind of bargaining like I just described, where we can get closer faster. Yeah. Like me, so how come we're not doing that? Uh, that's interesting, right? I used, to, uh, I used to do way more collaborative law, right? Which is basically lawyers trained to negotiate effectively uh, with a contract that says we can't go to court. So it takes all the incentive away from the lawyers to create a problem to the extent that might exist. So if we can't help you get a deal, we get fired. That's the underlying sort of ethos of collaborative law. 
Um, well, we haven't been doing a lot of that. And uh, I've spoken to a couple other lawyers, one of which is Medicine Hat, that used to be the, the mecca of collaborative law, and they're having problems too. And uh, the person I talked to kind of agreed with me that clients now compared to 10 years ago seem to be more um, insistent upon, I guess, what they call their rights, right? Um, and I, get, I think this gets to your comment uh, where people think that justice is for, in part um, predictable and certain, but they also think justice is going to give them what they think is right. And they don't yeah. really fully consider that the conception of justice for the other side looks very different. But you, so you have two people on two sides that both think that justice means getting what they're entitled to, right? And as lawyers, we kind of know inherently, if we're any good at what we do, that there's a range of potential. And uh, that when you go to trial, you could be anywhere in that range, high or low. You have no idea. Clients. I mean, well, maybe you know, but I mean, clients, I don't think- and, and they don't believe it, I don't think. No, they, they don't. Think that I get in front of a judge, he or she, they're gonna see that I'm in the right here. All my clients, everybody says that. I've asked all of my friends, I've asked all of my family, they all agree. My judge just hears what I have to say. They just hear my side, there's no way they can't sign. Yeah, I know, so. Which isn't, that's, that's take a, our word for it. That's not how it works. So, so because of that, you get them into mediation and they're in that same kind of mindset. I think more now than 10 or 20 years ago where um, what is reasonable is what I want. And when you start talking about compromise and understanding the other person's point of view, I think it's harder now than it was a decade ago. Um, you know, in our whole society, I mean, I don't want to get into a political thing, but read the paper. People that are liberal, people that are conservative. We don't live in a time where people uh, are trained or are uh, familiar with understanding another person's point of view, right? You can go on the yeah. internet and if you are a, you know, uh, a men's rights advocate, you can yeah. find stuff there that will say men are getting treated terribly. And then you can do the same thing for women or you could do the same thing for whatever your demographic is. Right. And so the internet has given us tons of information, but a lot of it's shitty information and it helps people validate their own sense of entitlement uh, that's problematic. And then, and then you throw on top of that the reality that people don't stop and think about. And judges are not picked because they're necessarily the most competent. Right? Not necessarily. Judges, oh, some of the judges are awesome. Most of the judges are yeah. awesome. But not yeah. every one of them, right? There are other factors that go into, but people don't get this. And they also ignore the fact that judges are human beings. And they have their own inherent biases and concerns that seem important to them. Um, you know, and then there are two sides to the argument. So that judge is put in a position, even if they're, you know, of the wisdom of Solomon, where sometimes decisions are hard. This COVID thing, I don't know if you got any of these files where people are arguing about how do you keep your kids and your family safe when you don't trust the other person. Right? Four or five hours of my day every day, that's what I do now. Yeah. And so, you know, you give that to a judge and tell the judge, how do you make sure that the children and the families are safe? That's a tough call. Oh, yeah. And, 
and people think, oh no, it's easy. No, it's not easy and it's not certain. Um, and if you can find a compromise, it's just helpful. Yeah. But that's a hard thing, particularly at the outset of a uh, separation for people to get their brain around. That's right. Because of the stress, because of the anger, the anxiety. Resentment. You know, what I try to do is, is I just talked to a client yesterday and it's easy to see the now, right? To see the problem today. But I've said to many clients, when I got divorced, my kids were three and one. And when my son graduated university, we had dinner and we sat at the table with my ex-wife and her husband and my, my second wife, both sets of grandparents and my son and daughter. And my son told me how much he appreciated that. So I say to people, look, your kids are four and five or whatever they are. Imagine a situation where your kids can love both of their parents equally 10 years from now, where they don't feel they need to hide their feelings for both parents, where they don't feel like they need to pick a side. Um, You know, so try to get clients to see beyond what happened last week and to imagine what it might be like if they have a cooperative relationship and it's not always easy. And sometimes my clients more difficult than others. And sometimes the other side's more difficult than others. But I think that's the aim, trying to get people in that place and trying to get them to counseling so they can be their best selves. To me, that's job one, because if they don't do that, the product that you get in terms of instructions, is always going to be faulty. And then it, it's way more likely the client's going to be upset or disappointed with the result. Yeah, so. I've always got kind of two or three files on the go where it's, yeah, that client just has these sort of irrational instructions, things like don't file a claim. I don't want to go to court. And hey, make sure this is resolved in 10 to 14 days. And yeah. It's like, whoa, you know, that's not even, those things don't even go together. It doesn't work, right? Um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to get clients sort of out of their own way. And that's how I see it as a little bit. Hey, how do we get these guys out of their own way so we can get to some resolution? Yeah. Uh, and I hear you kind of coming from a different place. You you come from a place, I guess, with more experience, both personally and professionally, it seems like. Whereas I I feel frustrated about that, you know? Yeah, I think it's frustrated, but I think it's easier when you just see people where they're at, not where you wish they were. Yeah. Right? So sometimes I'll have clients and they'll complain about their spouse doing something they don't like or their partner. And I'll say, well, in part, they're doing what they do, right? And you trying to ignore that or wish it away isn't going to change. So in some cases, I say it's like putting your hand in a box with a rattlesnake in it and it bites you, right? Now, you do that two or three times, getting mad at the snake it's kind of pointless because right. the snake is just doing what it does, right? What you need to do is adapt to that reality and you need to change your behavior because ultimately the only person we can control are ourselves. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's the other issue is when people have high anxiety and, and tension and anger, they really want to control the other side. Yeah. And getting them to understand that they fundamentally can't. And even if the court gives them a result that they think is, is reasonable, particularly when they've got kids. That other person can do all sorts of things that you can't and the judges will not control. Oh, yeah. And so ultimately, uh, finding peace 
is the goal. And sometimes that's through cooperation. Sometimes it's just through uh, accepting what you can't change and living with that. Yeah. Right. Your, your other side is, is got certain things they do that make you crazy and you need to learn to live with that because you're probably not going to completely change it. Right. Um, so it's a, uh, it's a challenge. Yeah, it is a challenge. Yeah. Uh, it's a weird way to make a living, right? You're, in, you're involved in this sort of very intimate relationship with your clients. Um, and we make a living doing that, right? There's sort of this yeah. inherent conflict, right? Where I'm making a living off of their dispute. Maybe this goes back because you earlier said this collaborative process takes away incentive from lawyers to create a dispute where there isn't one. And, and maybe that's what you're talking about is, hey, we're and I've told my clients that. I've actually said, I do this frequently. You need to understand that me as your lawyer, I'm always going to be in an inherent conflict of interest because the more you fight, the more money I earn, right? So you need to decide whether fighting is a good idea fundamentally. And I've used this crass example with clients frequently. I said, you know, when you're in my office, it's like a really expensive taxi ride, right? And that flag is just whipping around wildly at $500 an hour. Um, but you control that just like you do in a cab, right? So when the driver says, well, let's drive around the city, you have the right to go, no, 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 no. I just want to go from here to there, right? And clients need to understand their power and the relationship they have with the lawyer, uh, but the obligation as well to say, if I'm going to go around the city because I've decided that it's going to be yeah. more expensive and I need to decide that. I'm my lawyer, me. Lawyer gives me advice. I give instructions. And I think that's the best relationship. I know other lawyers that don't buy that right. and it bites them in the ass. I take care of my clients. I have this paternal relationship. I'm going to make their best decisions. But then when things don't turn out well, the client looks at you and goes, well, why the fuck did you do that? That's so hard on a lawyer. Right? I couldn't do it. So that. it's way easier when you say to a client, look, here's your risk. Here's, here's your downside. This is the cost. What do you want to do? And they don't want to make decisions. You say, you got to make the decision because I'm not going to. Yeah, when you do. make that decision, sometimes they don't make the best decisions. And you've given them advice. And they say, I want to go to court. You go, okay. And if things don't turn out well, and you've told them how much it's going to cost, and what the risk is, they come back and say, well, I'm not happy about paying you this money because this result occurred. I sleep well at night going, I let you know this. Yeah. Made that decision with your eyes open. Yeah, There's totally. No subterfuge. So I think empowering your clients, helping them make better decisions, it's both better for the client, it's better for me. I sleep at night, even though I make a good living, because I know my clients generally are paying me what they've decided they want to pay me. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And they've taken the risks that they want to take. Yeah. Not the risks I think they should take. You know, throughout my career to date on occasion, because I take the same stance, right? I say, no, 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 I'm not making your decisions. Here's the advice. Here's the cost. Here's the benefit. Here's the risk. Uh, you make the call. And occasionally I'll have these clients come to me and they'll say, well, hold on. What would you do if I was your brother or if I was your mom or your family? Last week, I'm running this mediation, and they must be maybe 25, 26-year-olds, uh, uh, husband and wife, and they're separating. So I run this mediation, 
And, uh, and the guy looks at me and he says, what would you do if I was your son? It's like, how old do I look? What do you mean if you were my son? <laughs> uh, I had a discovery <laughs> with our old uh, uh, associate from our former firm. Uh-huh. We started this firm. And in the middle of the discovery, he referred to me as dad. <laughs> right? What? And, uh, and it was so <laughs> funny because his client's eyes they were like this big. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. And so, yeah, maybe there's a little imbalance in the, uh, in the power dynamic. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> that's pretty good. All right, that's pretty good. Yeah, I laughed at that. I, <clears throat> I hope that it settles favorably, of course, for your clients. Yeah, it worked out pretty well at the end of the day. Hopefully for everybody. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. So what do you do then when you have clients who want you to control the behavior of either the other party or the other lawyer? I mean, I, my thing is I just tell them, we can't control what they're going to do. We can control what we're going to do. Here's your options. Make your choice. And let's see what they respond with. And we can't choose what they respond with. We can only reply to that. Yeah, you try to get them to understand that risk. You try to get them to understand, you know, their upside and downside and ramifications of their choices. Sometimes there is no optimal outcome. It's just the best of a difficult situation. Um, so, you know, that's part of it. Uh, sometimes you can put it in writing. Usually you put it in writing. Sometimes you get them to sign. You know, I've had a couple cases where what they wanted was so contrary to their best interests. I actually wrote, uh, you know, a letter saying, I want you to sign this before I take this step because I think you're going to be very disappointed with where this goes. Right. And yeah, no problem. (laughs) Okay. You know, that's fine. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So I think, you know, it's just trying to get them to get in a place where they can make that decision. You know, they're little tricks, not really tricks, but, but helping them understand what's going on. Right. I talk to them commonly about this homes, homes, raw life stress inventory. So they understand not that they're crazy, that they're effective compared to everyone else, including me. I say to my clients, I remember what it was like on the other side of the desk. I'm a divorce lawyer and I'm looking at my lawyer and I don't know what the fuck to do. Yeah. I don't know, but they sure go blind. And I've been doing this at that point for eight or nine years and I still wasn't sure what I should do. So I said, I understand that fear and that anxiety. Yeah. So I'm not judging them, but helping them understand that they're not in their best position and they need to get there to make good decisions. Right. One of the things I'll say to people quite often, I say it to lawyers too, is, you know, this whole thing about fight or flight, right? Um, anger is quite closely related to fear. They're both, they both come from this part of your brain called the amygdala, right? This little peanut part of the base of your brain. And it, and it makes really quick decisions when you're in a position of uh, threat. So if a bear starts charging after you, your amygdala kicks in and you don't start considering the weight and the speed of the bear. You just start trying to climb the closest tree um, because your rational brain needs to take a backseat to your responsive brain, the fight or flight. Yeah. Well, when you're in a divorce, you really need that rational brain to kick in. You need to shut down the amygdala, right? Because they don't both work at the same time. And I tell clients this so they can understand kind of what's going on. I'll say, you know, when you're really angry, 
um, you're not being as rational as you would like. And then the other thing is, and this is my own theory, I don't, I've never really looked at this, but it makes sense. I think innately, when other people are angry, we probably know they're afraid of us. Mm -hmm. We know they're insecure. So I'll say to clients, um, you know, when you're exhibiting a lot of anger to the other person, you're sending a bit of a signal that you're afraid of them. And is that the signal you want to send? And I say it the same to lawyers, right? When you're losing it with a lawyer on the other end of a file, when you're right. sending those snotty four-page lawyer letters that the lawyers ignore, or when you're phoning and yelling, you're really sending a bit of a signal that you're afraid of the other lawyer. Is that the signal you want to send? Because I think we all know when you got a lawyer on the other side, is very calm. That can be intimidating. Yeah. You know, when you think they're just being ridiculous, you know, I'll say this to lawyers. I'll say, you know what? Um, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. I might be wrong, but that's what we have judges for. So let's just put it in front of a judge and, and we'll, you know, we'll resolve it. I, I, it's not personal. Right. And I think personally, when, when lawyers exhibit a confidence in their position, and they're not getting angry, is way more intimidating than when they're trying to tear a strip off you. Totally. And it took me probably a decade to learn that. I used to be the biggest dick on files. <laughs> I was yelling at lawyers. You know, and it took me a while to figure out that's not productive. It's, you know, I get it. I'm upset for my clients and, you know, it's, I'm agitated. But uh, at the end of the day, I found it was less effective. Right. You know, this is our position. Yeah. This is why I'm taking this position and I don't need you to agree. That's what we have judges for. Yeah. I've got lots where lawyers will dig in on these positions, right? Where there's this point of law and they think they're right. And bottom line is, it actually doesn't matter. The numbers work out that we've got a settlement on the table uh, that maybe everybody likes or maybe everyone doesn't like, but the numbers are close enough we can work with them, even if we disagree on a position. Some of these lawyers dig in on some of these positions. And uh, that also, yeah, I, can, I find that's pretty counterproductive. And maybe that has to do with clients sort of, their uh, lawyers taking their, their clients' emotions on to themselves. Yeah, probably. Probably yeah. just agree. And probably, or sometimes, you know, like, you know, I've taken positions that I didn't agree with because those are my instructions. As long as they're right. ethical. And I've told my client their risk. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, I did a trial a few years back. The guy wanted to challenge custody of a little 11 year old girl with his wife. And I told him it's, we are not, our chances are dismal. Yeah. Right. And he insisted and we ran the trial and we won. He got custody. Yeah. And they appealed and the court of appeals sent it back for a retrial. We ran another trial and we won again. So Jeez. shows you how smart I am. Right. I <laughs> a dead loser, And, and it worked out now, Twice. you know, to be candid or you know full disclosure I, i've had files i thought i couldn't lose yeah that i lost yeah right so that's the nature of the beast and i think you learn that's what experience gives you is an understanding that your ability to predict outcomes is is you know it's it's uncertain yeah i don't care how good you are i don't care how strong you are i don't care how many years you've practiced um, you never know going into a courtroom exactly what's going to happen. No. The best you can do is uh, 
we had a civil lit prof, guy named Ace Henderson, in Vancouver. I went to UBC, and he was slick. This guy was phenomenally strong litigator. Yeah. And he said he never gives his clients better than an 80% chance. Never. That's right. There's always a 20% stupidity factor where something's going to be stupid. The client, the judge, the lawyers, something is going to screw that situation up, even what he would consider a virtually perfect case. Mm -hmm. So I remember that and, and I've carried that from the day I first started practicing. There's no such thing as certainty in litigation. Very, very strong. 80%. That's as good as it gets. That's fair enough. And you say to clients, you know, are you the kind to go to Vegas? <laughs> Trial might cost you seventy or eighty thousand yeah. dollars. Right? Now the outcome, you know, if we're arguing about money, there's a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollars an issue. Would you put eighty thousand dollars on red on a roulette wheel? Hoping you might get one sixty. And that, and it makes clients kind of think for a minute and they go, whoa, whoa right? And again, that gets back to exactly what you said, which is, do they understand the system is fallible? Do they really understand, right, that the outcomes are are not certain and that their perception of their rightness is misplaced? Despite how many family and friends that say this is, man, it's important. doesn't matter what your family and friends tell you. I don't know if you've said this, but few times maybe you should hire your brother to be your lawyer because clearly he knows more than i do right why are you paying me all this money when so-and-so is giving you better advice than i am Uh, i got one right now and uh yeah my client's good friends with a lawyer this lawyer's giving them all sorts of advice doesn't always mesh up with what i'm saying his lawyer does real estate transactions for a living I run custody trials. There's yeah. a bit of bit of a difference, right? Yeah. And uh, and I do say right. maybe you want to go hire this guy. Yeah. I'll tell you what, if you got a copyright litigation, do not ask me for advice because I'm <laughs> next to completely incompetent. Exactly. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> So what do we do? All right, let's summarize that. So what do we do? Tell me this. Do you ever actually track clients who see mental health professionals and uh, engage that against the clients that don't? Do you have a success no. with some? No. I do. I actually, one of my questions in my intakes is, do you see a mental health professional, see a counselor, psychologist, whatever? If so, well, I do that. Oh, but okay. I can really follow up on whether or not they're actually seeing this person. There, there are yeah. times where, where the client's struggling and the advice you're getting seems uh, questionable, that I will follow up and say, are you still seeing your counselor? Because you seem to be struggling with this. Um, but no, every one of my clients uh, virtually, um, you know, you should get some counseling because it's difficult shit to deal with. Isn't and I it? need you to be your best self so that I can do my best job. But I don't follow up. And I mean, the clients ultimately are, they're adults. Right. right. So I mean, I don't if you want to go to counseling is your prerogative. Best I can do is, is give you my best advice that it's helpful, um, you know, and, and can save you not just heartache, but money. Oh, yeah. Right? So if you're going to give me better advice, it means you're less likely to litigate when you don't need to. 
you're more likely to find a resolution that is within reason, um, which can translate into shorter divorce and lower legal fees. Oh yeah. Okay. So I don't follow up, but I do track and I keep in mind and I've got it. I, you know, I, I keep a, a list of what I need to do on a file, what's been done. And in that list, I track, okay, who's seen this mental health professional who isn't. Uh, and I take clients words for, it. and I guess, you know, typically I don't follow up. Are you actually doing it? I never verify uh, whether it's happening, but I do find overall, you know, my clients who get mental health on the mental health help on the side that they do fare better. They're spending way less money on me. They're giving me direct, clear instructions. It's not two, three, four, five emails a day where I'm charging, you know, six minutes for every single email. It is, uh, you know, one email a week. Here's what you got to do. Here's the next step. Here's the answer to your three questions, you know, clear and concise. They're spending way less money on me, giving me better instruction. I'm able to get them better results. Uh, yeah, so it is better. It is helpful. So I guess a takeaway from this would be, hey, that's not something worth skimping on. That's really yeah. useful. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, now the real question, you know, so we've answered that. I think the fundamental question, though, and if anyone actually watches this, right? Which hopefully a few people will. We have um, three followers. Yeah. What I want to know is. Um, does Tyler look cooler because he's got headphones? And should I, should I be wearing headphones? Or does that give me kind of a Mickey Mouse kind of a thing going on? I think, it, I think my headphones are a little different than yours there, Mickey. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was wearing these. I, I was talking to a judge last night, actually, about some changes in response to this COVID thing. Yeah. And when I first was talking to her, I was doing this. <laughs> And I'm looking, and I'm like, they look like mouse ears. <laughs> so it know, does look like you could be in Disneyland. Yeah. So anyway. Your mic is cool. I like your mic. Yeah. It's, it's, Whoa. It's a uh, Yeti. It looks as heavy as my infant. It probably is. Well, probably not now, maybe a month or so. Ago. I guess he's a toddler. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I uh, went to Best Buy yesterday. Oh. Have to say, um, incredibly good service. Oh, uh, good. Also, this COVID thing. Awesome. Um, uh, I don't know what everyone's experience is, you know, in terms of shopping right now. Um, Costco's been really good. Safeway's been pretty good. Save-On's a nightmare, in personal opinion. Um, Best Buy, I went there and the guy said, uh, did you order online? And I went, no. And he goes, well, you can't. This is only for pickups. I went, oh. So I went in my truck and I got my cell phone. <laughs> I ordered my mic. And then uh, three minutes later, I got confirmation my order is ready to be picked up. Hey, awesome. Perfect. Right? And so you go there and you're, uh, uh, do you have an order to pick up? Yes. What's your name? Tells you. They don't let you in the store. You sit outside. And then one person at a time goes to the till in the whole store and you do your transaction. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, it was really good. Um, that is really good. And I'm not usually a big fan of Best Buy and we're not endorsing Best Buy. Not endorsing them. They're not sponsoring us. No, not oh, yet. they could. If they wanted. If they want to. Best Buy for the finest products. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so that's where I got my uh, little microphone. But you can't really see it, you know, I guess that's a little bit better. It's a little bit better. 
We can work on that. Without the headphones. Yeah, we can work on that. Uh, we'll get, I don't know if it'd be yeah, better if I had a We'll little get more. feedback from the throngs of followers we're probably going to get after today. I'm sure. Um, headphones or no headphones. That's Let's go back to the drink. I want to know about that. So how was it? You know what? It wasn't bad. Um, basically, it's a martini. If you like martinis, okay. you might like this drink. Um, there's no sweetness to it. I used dry sherry with gin. And I added a maraschino cherry and a little uh, leaf of basil. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't bad. But so, I don't drink uh, a, a good martini either. Right. So you're okay with it. And what are you drinking? I am drinking some Glenfiddich uh, 15-year. Scotch. Scotch. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it was, it's really good. Very smooth. Very smooth. I like uh, Highland Park 12. I find that to be really smooth with a nice peaty finish. But uh, this is pretty good. So we'll have to maybe incorporate that into our uh, weekly routine. We got to figure out what drink is uh, next next week. Well, I'm going to continue with the straight law just because that's our namesake. I think it's because you've got two giant bottles behind you, but okay. Well, yeah, um, yes, definitely. All right. And when this COVID is Friday, we get together. It is Friday. It's like what is it? Two forty-four. Yeah. So it's not like I'm going to start doing a bunch of work now in a sort of somewhat inebriated state. Uh, but yeah, maybe next week I'll do the straight law and you could bring in a new. So you could be the, the drink aficionado and I'll be the, uh, you know, the, we the basic old guy. <laughs> That's kind of I'll like come a, up with something for next week. Yeah. Uh, and next week, I want to know why you shook it and you didn't stir it. So we can ask you that next week. I want to answer. Uh, because I have no idea. Next week. Oh, oh. Uh, I'm not an expert by any means. The recipes I looked up all said shake, strain to a cocktail glass. All right. All right. Okay, well, this was a pleasure. I think uh, somewhat productive, maybe. Yeah, it was kind of fun. I guess we'll see if we get some feedback. Yeah, it might take some time, but we'll do this every week. I think the idea is to try to get the thing out sometime late Friday. Yeah. Um, and we'll see where this takes us. Sounds good. All right, well, I hear a bunch of creaking and moaning in the background over there. So, sounds like you got an intruder or something you got to take care of. Uh, like your lawyer wife. All right, well, then this is it. We'll let you go. All right, take care. All right. Have a good Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody.